0: Welcome to the sermon podcast for Restoration Nazarene Church, where we encourage you to be the gospel today so that you can share the gospel tomorrow. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all today and and to think that there's still so many people that are sick. We're traveling or out of town, but those that are here today, I say welcome. Those that are joining us online, I say welcome. Uh, We have been going through the book of Revelation, and as Amy said, that. Revelation can be really fun, or it can be really scary, or it can be really confusing, or all of the above. And as, as I was thinking about this week, um, the, the, the book of Revelation has all this buildup and this anticipation, or especially in what we were looking through. And I was thinking about the, the idea of tension. And have you ever noticed how we as humans love tension? We, we love buildup. Like reality TV is filled with drama. There is tension. Stan's like, Yeah, I know, I love that stuff, is what he's saying. No, just kidding. Um, It's filled with that or or TV shows or even movies are filled with this buildup. There's always a problem that they're trying to solve this anticipation or TV shows have recently become really good at leaving you on a cliffhanger so that you have to watch the next one and then the next one before you know it, it's 2 a.m. and you got to work up in a couple of hours because it's time for work, it becomes about this buildup or this anticipation of, of something. And I think we get this way in our life as well. We, we start to think about things this way. We're constantly building up to something. We're constantly focused on something that is coming. We have a vacation that is coming up that we are thinking about. We, we have these big ideas for the future that we are thinking about, we're getting excited about, we're, we're looking forward to, that there's always something coming that we build anticipation to. And, and in a way, it almost creates a sense of purpose, in our life. We have this goal that we set, this thing that we're working to, and now we know what to do to get there. It almost provides this sense of of purpose so that we know how to reach our destination, And this idea of anticipation and buildup is what we see in these chapters of Revelation that that we read through this week in our our reading challenge we went through. And if you did not read through the reading challenge, don't worry. We'll cover all of that today. But these chapters of Revelation, they are building up for something. There's all this anticipation. And and there's something that, that God is calling us to do through there. And and when you first read this, you don't see it. There's this message that's hidden, but not so hidden, but still kind of hidden within these chapters. And, And I want to pull that out and point that out to you all this morning. But it all starts with this anticipation. And the worst thing about anticipation is when something builds and builds and builds, but then nothing comes of it. Like, you know, those really bad jokes that that take forever of all this build up and build up, and then you get to the punchline, and it's just, it's not funny anymore because you gave up. Or um, fear. Sometimes we do this with fear, Emma. she freaked out as I said her name. Emma got her ears pierced a couple of weeks ago, like a, a month ago, and she was afraid of the needle going through, and so she built up all this anticipation of, of this fear of, of getting poked by the needle, and then when it actually came time, she was sitting there like tension is building. She's feeling tense. They did it, and she goes, oh, that was it? Like, it, that would, I was worried about all of that for nothing. It's, and sometimes that's a good thing when, when we do that with fear. But in, in a way, I felt that this happened with these chapters of Revelation. That we had all this buildup, all this stuff coming to all of this anticipation, but then it feels like nothing actually happened, uh, like like the punchline appeared to be there, but then it was just kind of lame at first. At least that's how I felt about these chapters of of Revelation and this this buildup or anticipation that we see started last week with with the idea of the seven seals. So we see this this image in heaven where, where the Lamb, Jesus, has this scroll and the scroll is locked up by these seven seals. Each one has to be broken in order for the scroll to be opened. And we saw six of those seven seals broken. This buildup, this anticipation happening. And then we we get to the final, the final seal. And to make it even more exciting, more, more tension building, they break up this final seal into seven different sections that are all brought on by these seven different trumpets and it builds and it builds and and we watch as each of these seven trumpets are are blown but yet it doesn't really do that much. Each of them they build, and this this chaos comes. It's just it feels like complete chaos until we get to the seventh one. And then it doesn't appear like very much happened. It, to me, as I was reading, it, I felt like there was all this anticipation, this buildup. And then what? Like I was imagining explosions or end of the world stuff to happen with this, but but nothing actually happened except for this message that is hidden, but not so hidden that I that I want to pull out. And so I want to walk through these chapters leading up to that, so that I can um, point out this final message. And and before we jump into all of that, let me just review the rules of Revelation, because again, Revelation can be very confusing, and so. For First, we have to remember that this was a letter originally written to the early church, church as a whole. There were seven churches in specific that it was written to. So we must think about it from their perspective first. Second, Revelation is not written in a straightforward, in a timeline fashion. It's not this timeline of future events that's going to happen in order. And to prove that, last week when we talked about the the six seals that had been broken, it described all of this darkness, the destruction of the sky, the destruction of the earth. But then what we will see here in a moment with these trumpets is that the, the sky and the earth are destroyed destroyed again. So so at some point they had to be restored in order for it to be destroyed again. So so either God is going to destroy things and then restore it back to order so that he can destroy it again and Revelation just forgot to tell us about that middle part. Or this is proof that it doesn't happen in a straightforward fashion, but rather revelation is, is written in these cycles that we talked about where, where things happen, but then we almost go back in time. It's just the same thing that's just talked about in a different way. And the third rule is that revelation was written to call the church to repentance and to worship. Every time that we see destruction and chaos, that chaos leads us back to a place of worship. We are transported back into the the presence of God. It's a call for us to examine our lives, to repent of our sins, but also to examine our church, our local church, our global church, so that we can be brought to a place of pure worship where our heart is clean so that we can worship with the right motives. Those are the rules. So now let's jump in. And I'm going to have some verses on the screen as I go through this. But if you have a Bible source, today would be the day to kind of follow along. I promise it won't be confusing So we start in chapter 8 of Revelation. And again, prior to this, there was a scroll with seven seals. Six of those seals had been broken. And now we are at the seventh seal, which they break up into seven different trumpets. Again, to build all of this anticipation. The first four trumpets are blown and destroy one third of everything. The land on the earth, the sea, the waters on earth, the sky, one third of all of those is destroyed with the first four trumpets. And then we have this this image of of an eagle that can talk. It's a talking eagle that flies in in chapter 8 verse 13 that says, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. This talking eagle gives us three woes which foreshadow the three trumpets that are about to be blown. And these three trumpets are now going to bring devastation to the people. In a way, these first four trumpets that happen, they they destroy the earth and the sky and were done to move all the people to a central location. Imagine like a military strategy where you surround the enemy and you push them all into one central location so that you can attack them all at once. This is what's going on. The first four seals destroy all of everything to push them into this central location. And then the eagle says, "Woe, poor people, three more woes are about to come upon you. Anticipation is building. You can feel it. And so then the fifth trumpet is blown. This is the first woe. And this is chapter nine. And all there's there's a star that falls from heaven and it this is what Revelation says. It opens up this abyss and out of the abyss comes these crazy scorpion like locusts that torture everything. And according to uh, chapter 9 verse 4, they torture everyone that does not have the seal of God on their forehead. And the torture is so bad that it says in verse 6 of chapter 9 that they wished to die. Woe to them. The first four moved them all to a central location. The fifth Trumpet, which is the first woe, this star falls down, sends all these locusts to start torturing all the people, and it's so bad that they wished to die woe to them. Then the second woe, which is the sixth trumpet, is blown. This is verse 13 if you're following along. And four angels and all their troops come and they're breathing fire, smoke, and sulfur. And then these fire, smoke, and sulfur are filled with plagues. And one third of mankind is killed. First they were tortured and then a third of them were killed. And I guess we could say at least they got their wish. Those that wished to die, they finally did die. And then there's something else that I, that I want to point out really quick here. It's that the true followers of Christ have been protected by the seal. They were not tortured. They were not killed because they had the seal placed on their forehead. However, I want to point out that they have not been taken away. They have not been snatched up in a a rapture. It says in chapter 9 verse 4 that the locusts could only harm those that did not have the seal on their foreheads. If the sealed people had been taken away, then the locusts would not have needed that command because everybody on the earth was free game to attack. But instead, they are given this command to individually check the foreheads of each person before they torture them to find out. This means that the true followers, those that have been sealed with the mark of God on their forehead, were present during all of this chaos. Yes, they were protected, but they still had to experience the chaos. I can only imagine the type of fear that is going on. And this, this almost asks, makes me ask the question of, of why would God keep them on the earth during this time? W- what is God doing with this? Why would he do that? What is he planning? And sometimes I ask that of my own life, of, of times where I'm going through the chaos of life where bad things happens after another. We were at a funeral yesterday and I think we're up to what, 15, 16 in the last 15 months. It's just one thing after another. And sometimes it makes me wonder, God, what are you doing? Why are you not protecting me from this chaos? Why do I have to go through all of this chaos? Do you feel like that sometimes? And there, there's, there's an answer that we find here. And again, this is part of that hidden but not so hidden message that I'll point out here shortly. But if we go back to the anticipation, the buildup that we see here, we, we see all of this buildup coming with the, the coming of this seven trumpet. Again, the first four blot destruction to a third of everything. Then everybody's tortured, and then a third of mankind is killed. And we know that the seventh trumpet is coming; it's going to happen. Um, but then they—we're we, kind of interrupted in this. Where at the end of chapter nine, where we would expect to find the seventh trumpet, instead it takes a break to tell us that the people still do not repent. This is chapter 9 verses 20 and 29, or 20 through 21, where it says that the people still do not repent. And again, remember that the point of revelation is to bring people to a place of repentance so that they can worship. And remember that a third of everything has been destroyed. A third of the people have been killed. They have been tortured, but yet they still don't repent. It says in these verses 20 and 21 that they don't repent of of the work of their hands, of worshiping demons and having idols. They don't repent of their murders, their magic arts, sexual immorality, or their, their thefts. They continue in these things. And I don't know about you, but I read about all of this and I wonder why. Why do they continue in all of this? Why don't they repent? They have witnessed all of this destruction. They see people around them with the mark of God that are being protected. But they still don't repent. I mean the argument that God doesn't exist can't be used at this point. At this point God exists. Because those people that have the mark of God are protected. But yet they still don't repent. Why? It's, you know, it's possible, we don't really know, but it's possible that they, maybe they were angry with God and they're like, you know what? I don't want to be a part of that. I know you exist and I'm going to choose to not do it anyway. I'm going to choose this torture in this death anyway because I don't want to be a part of what is going on here. But it's also possible that, that maybe they were turning somewhere else to find safety and protection. When you read through the list of the things that they don't repent from, it seems very possible that that they were surrounded by all of these evils and that they might think that accommodating these evils is the natural way to survive. When the demonic hordes out of the abyss, those locusts came to torture everything, people seemed to respond by worshiping demons. When one-third of humanity is killed, they seem to respond by killing. When the armies breathe out fog and fire and all this stuff, I I can only imagine that it almost looked like some magic stuff. It's no wonder why they try their own hand at the magic arts. Survival becomes this, this idea of kill before you are killed or to accommodate these evil things so that you can survive. In other words, they don't want to be associated with with Christians or God and would rather worship evil in an attempt to survive. And we talked a few weeks about about how the, the common problem of the early churches were that they accommodated the culture around them. They they tried to fit into them at, at the risk of their own Christian identity, that, that they were seeing these things happen and we're seeing the same message happen again here. And I think it's only appropriate for us as the readers, as we're going through this, to stop for a moment and pause and to ask, are we in some way or another doing the same thing? Have we in some way compromised our Christian image to try and fit into the culture around us? Have we done things to try and fit in with the people at our workplace, at our schools? Have we done things to try and fit in with our friends or our neighbors? Is Jesus really happy with our faithfulness and our Christian image? Or, in some way, are we like those that choose not to repent, but choose to go along with the culture and worship other idols? Can you see how Revelation is pulling us along with this anticipation while also giving us all these opportunities to repent before the seventh trumpet is blown? it's this anticipation that is building and at this point we should expect that after this short pause that we should find the seventh trumpet blown that has been the pattern that's been set up through all of this but instead we find a longer break this this interlude in chapter 10 and we read about this gigantic angel that places one foot on the land and one foot on the sea and he he's holding a scroll and then John who's the author here he awkwardly eats this scroll which tasted sweet to him but gives him an upset stomach, which is just so weird. And then we go to chapter 10 and we have another short story before we get to the seventh trumpet about how God sends two witnesses to the world, to Jerusalem, to the city, to try and get people to follow God again, to try and repent of their sins. And these two witnesses are eventually killed But then they're brought back to life. And with these two witnesses, we see even more destruction. Chapter 11 verse 13 says that a tenth of the city is destroyed and 7,000 people are killed. And this is important. So I want you to remember this. We're going to circle back to it. One tenth of the city is destroyed and 7,000 people are killed. And then finally... Chapter 11, verse 14. We are brought to the moment that we have been waiting for. The second woe has been passed. We're now to the final trumpet, which is going to be blown. Talk about anticipation and build up. It's like, like if you imagine, those of you that are our parents in here, imagine if your, your kids don't stop doing something. And so you say to them, I'm going to give you until the count of three to stop doing what you're doing. One, Two, and then they, they, they don't, and, and then you say, I mean it, don't don't make me count to three, two and a quarter, two and a half, you better stop, and, and you know, like, you really don't want to count to three, but you have to to show them who is boss, Right? This is kind of what I'm imagining God doing here. He's saying, all right, everybody, I'm going to count to seven. He counts to six with the first six seals and people still don't repent. And then he goes, all right, six and one trumpet, six and two trumpet, but still people don't repent And God is saying, okay, don't make me go to seven. You have one last chance. I'm about to say seven. You have all this anticipation that is building. And there's something special that we see with this interlude, which is part of the the, the hidden but not so hidden message. And I'm going to come back to this, but let's get to the moment that we've all been waiting for. The final buildup, the seventh trumpet is blown. And as we get there, remember that a third of everything has been Destroyed by the end of the sixth trumpet. And God is pulling us along through all of this. So at this point, we could expect complete and utter chaos to be unleashed. But instead of complete chaos, when the seventh trumpet is blown, we have a scene of worship. Again, this is where I expected big explosions, the world to completely end. But instead, we have this scene of worship in heaven. Because chaos brings us to a place of worship. And all of this may seem kind of odd when you're reading about all of this destruction that has come from God. But there's actually a great deal of mercy that happens here. And so I want to circle back to the, the, the uh, two witnesses in chapter 11. I told you to pay attention to the tenth of a city being destroyed and seven thousand people dying, and these numbers seem like they add to the chaos, but they actually have this hidden but not so hidden meaning here. The, the witnesses in chapter six of, um, sorry, chapter eleven, verse six, they're described as these two olive trees or or two lampstands with the power to breathe fire to control the weather by stopping the rain, to turn water to blood, and to send plagues upon the earth. And remember, our rule is that this is first written to the early church. And so if we think about it from the early church, all of those descriptions would make you think about the Old Testament. In Jeremiah, the the Lord made the words of Jeremiah the prophet like fire coming out of his mouth. Elijah was given the power to close up the heavens and stop the rainfall. Moses had the power to turn water into blood and to send plagues upon the earth. And if we keep thinking about the Old Testament, then we can think about the prophets Isaiah and Amos. In Isaiah chapter 6, it describes the calling of Isaiah where God tells him to go to all the people and call them to repent. And Isaiah asks him, how long? And God responds in uh, verse 11. He says, until the cities lie ruined and only one-tenth of the city remains Remember that, one-tenth, that's a special number. When only one-tenth of the city remains. And then with Amos, in chapter 5, verse 3 of Amos, it says the same thing, that only one-tenth would remain, meaning that nine-tenths are destroyed, one-tenth remain. And then we would think about Elijah in 1 Kings 19 when when God tells the prophet Elijah that only 7,000 people in Israel would be spared. And I, I know that I went through all of that really quickly. And so to summarize all of this is what I'm trying to say here is that the destruction that we see of these witnesses should make us think about the Old Testament and make connections back there to these specific ideas that one-tenth of the city should remain and only and 7,000 people should be left is what it says. So God originally promised that nine-tenths would be destroyed and that everybody except for 7,000 would be killed. However, God does the exact opposite of that. Only one-tenth is destroyed. And only 7,000 people are killed. And we could read this and have a perspective of judgment and destruction and question God's motives. Or we could read this and see the mercy of God. We could see how God exceeded expectations. The way that he pulled people along and gave them every chance possible to repent. Because he did not want the destruction to come upon anybody. And that even though he should have destroyed mostly everything. He decides to do the opposite and spare it. I mean if we think about that. If we go back to the the concept of of parents, when you count to three, if we were to tell our our kids that on the count of three, they would be grounded from everything for three weeks out of the month, but then we get to the count of three and then we say, you know what? I'm going to change my mind. Instead, you get to play with all of your stuff for three weeks and then only the last week of the month, you're going to be grounded. If we did that, then our kids would walk all over us. They wouldn't respect us. We would no longer be the boss. We wouldn't do that as parents. But yet, that's what God does for us here. I mean, how great is God? And he has a reason for doing this. There's a purpose or a message hidden with all of this that has to do with these two witnesses. And then that awkward scene of John eating a scroll. And so if we go back to chapter 10 to this weird scene of of the angel and John, we see in chapter 10 how how it describes this giant angel standing on the land and the sea, holding a scroll. He raises his hand to heaven and he says, that there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. He declares that the mystery of God would be revealed and now what is interesting is that he, he said it will come as in an announcement, just as he announced it to his servants. And, and you know me well enough by now to know that I don't like to bring in Greek words from the original language, but, but I'm going to do that today. Uh, because the word that he uses for announcements is euangelizo. It should be on the screen. Yuan Galizo is, the, is the, the word here for announcement, which is very similar to our word evangelism or, or even gospel. That's where we get those words, that idea of announcement. And again, gospel is the good news of Christ. So what he is saying is that the scroll contains the mystery of God, which is the good news, and that it would be announced. It would be evangelized. It would be pronounced and told to everybody. And then John eats the scroll. In other words, he eats the message of the good news. He eats the mystery of God, and as he eats it, it becomes part of him. The message, the mystery, the good news of Christ comes inside of him. He receives the message and then the angel tells him in verse 11 that you must prophesy again about many people and nations and languages and kings. John receives the message and then is instructed to prophesy or to tell everyone about it. And this message is the good news, the gospel message of Jesus. So John's mission is to share this message to all the people. But there's more. Chapter 11 goes into the story of these two witnesses. And I mentioned a moment ago that these two witnesses were used to remind us of things from the Old Testament. In other words, these are not two literal people, but instead they represent something. They are described as olive trees and lampstands. And earlier in chapter 1 of Revelation, the lampstands are used to describe or represent the church the congregation, the churches. In other words, these two witnesses represent the whole of Christianity, the entire Christian body. And the term witness is to testify. Think of a witness that is called to a stand in a courtroom to testify, to tell the truth about what they saw, about what they experienced. And remember when I said that that God had kept all of those with the seal of their head through all of this chaos? They were there for a reason, and that reason was to be witnesses to the people around them. Let me try and put all of this together so that it makes sense. John ate the scroll. The message of Jesus and was was given the purpose to proclaim that message to everyone. So he writes the book of Revelation to reveal that message, that letter to all of the, the Christians, to the church. And it is it's a message of hope, it's a message to call us to repentance and worship through the chaos. It's a reminder of God's goodness and his mercy of how he has delayed the coming of Christ so that more people can repent. He continues to slowly count, giving more opportunities. This is what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 9, that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to Repentance. And then the church, the body of Christ, all of the Christians present during this chaos, they are protected by God, but they are present, and they are present for a purpose, which is to be a witness to those around them. We are the church, we are the witnesses that stand in the midst of chaos. And just like these two witnesses, we stand with power. We stand with the power of the Holy Spirit to testify as a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we mean when we say to be and share the gospel message to those around us on the drive here this morning, we were listening to the radio, and, and the, the radio host was telling this story about how he was reminded that it was a friend of his birthday. And so he went to Facebook to, to post something about the birthday and found out that his friend had passed away several months earlier. And then he, he was thinking about how right before he passed away, this friend of him was started talking to him randomly about all kinds of random stuff and, and he was kind of confused at why he was asking all these questions which led into religion and all this stuff and he, he felt a little awkward about it, almost unprepared and in a way he got a little nervous and didn't really want to talk about Jesus and then it, it hit him when he realized that his friend had just died as he was thinking about, wow, that was my opportunity to share Jesus, and I didn't do it. And I think about how we are in a place of chaos. It looks different for everybody. Sometimes we we are in the eye of the storm where life feels good, but it's not over yet. Sometimes we're going through deep chaos, deep pain, and we wonder what is going on. But it's through the chaos that we are brought to a place of worship. Ultimately, we have a choice to make. We, we could read Revelation. We could think about God and see destruction and chaos and live in fear or anticipation of future events. We could, we could question God and, and his motives or his things. Or we could read Revelation And we could see that through the chaos, we are protected and brought to a place of worship. We could see that we, as the church, have a specific mission, a specific purpose, which is to wear the seal of God on our foreheads, meaning everybody can see it. We cannot hide it, but we wear it proud to be a Christian and we bear a witness to Jesus Christ. Our purpose in life is to love God with our whole heart and to love our neighbor as ourself. Our purpose in life is also to make disciples. That is to share the good news of Jesus Christ to those around us all of which could be summed up in us saying to be and share the gospel. As we be and share the gospel, we are loving God, we are loving others, and we are making disciples. This buildup and anticipation in life should lead us to that. Everything that has happened in our lives prior to this should be the build up to this moment where we have the choice to decide to bear the image of Christ, to make that decision to share hope with those that are experiencing chaos. Even though life can be chaotic, we can find hope. We can find the presence of God and worship. We can be brought back to a place of worship because we are called, because we are sealed for a purpose. And that purpose is to be and share the gospel. And so I wonder, as as you think about your life, the first question I have is, has God been bringing you along asking you to repent of your sins, asking you to accept the message of Jesus Christ? Asking you to experience his hope and his goodness in the midst of the chaos in your life. Not that being a Christian removes you from the chaos, but that being a Christian places you in the chaos with a purpose, with a new perspective, with the ability to see hope and goodness in the chaos. Has God been leading you along, asking you to repent of something? Have you done that? Do you feel like you have been fulfilling your purpose to be and share the gospel message? When was the last time that you told somebody about Jesus? When was the last time that you acted like Jesus to those around you? That's the message for us that is hidden, but not so hidden in these chapters. The message for us is to repent of our sins and actions, to trust in God and remain faithful and to bear the image of Christ so that we can be a faithful witness. I mentioned earlier that we have an opportunity to evaluate our lives as well as our church. And only you can evaluate your life. I don't know where you're at in your life. Only you and God know that. And it is up to you to evaluate and determine what God may be calling you to do. But we together can evaluate our church, our local church. And I don't know how you see it, but from my perspective I think we're doing rather great. You are by far the best congregation that I have ever had the honor to pastor. You're the only congregation that I've pastored, but that's beside the point. You are by far the best. You're all loyal. You are caring. You don't judge people. You welcome everybody in. And that is rare. I hate to say it, but that is rare. Other congregations don't do that, but you all do. I think we are fulfilling our call as a church, but I think it's time for us to do more of that. I think it's time for us to reach even more people with the gospel, to serve even more people, to be and share the gospel to even more people. I would like to welcome more people into our church family. I would love to see Jesus move in the lives of even more people. And to do that, we need to work together. Amen. And that starts with you, It starts with me. It starts with us bearing the image of Christ in our life, acting differently in the world so that people see us and and wonder, what is it that's different about you? Because I want that, which leads to an opportunity to say, it's not me, it is Jesus. And you can have it too. Let me tell you about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for my life. It starts with you being willing to be and share the gospel. It starts with you inviting people to this journey of Jesus. A few weeks ago, I asked you to write down the name of someone that you will intentionally pray over. Somebody that needs to know Jesus. And in addition to that, as you are praying for that individual or multiple people, if you wrote down multiple names... I want to give each of you another opportunity, another call. I'm going to have Amy pass out two cards to each of you. These are two invite cards. And your mission this week is to find two different people from different families and invite them to experience Jesus. Invite them to come along with this journey with you. But here's the rule. Here's the rule about inviting people. First, don't be pushy. Don't be a used car salesman. Nothing against car salesmen. But don't be that pushy salesman. Number two, only invite people to one thing at a time. And this is a big one that I just realized this week that I have a problem with doing because I'm the type of person that says, oh, I would love for you to be a part of this. Let me give you a list of all the things and you can just choose one. Like just pick one that fits within your schedule. You can come to Sunday morning. You can come to Wednesday group. You can come camping with us this week. You can come to experience this thing. You can come to Water Day. You can come to this. Just choose one, whatever fits within your schedule. What I've realized is that overwhelms people. And so the second rule is choose one. Choose one thing to invite them to. Either invite them to Sunday morning, if you think they'll get more out of that, or invite them to Wednesday night's Bible study. Or come camping with us this weekend. I know. We'll do it again. That is your mission this week. And next week would be a great time to invite people because we're going to talk about the mark of the beast in Revelation chapter 13. The mark of the beast, the Antichrist. Who is the Antichrist? What does the number 666 really mean? That is next week. So it would be a great time to invite somebody to come along because it's going to be a fantastic conversation, I bet, or terrifying. We'll find out. That's the rule. After you get them to come to one thing, then you can invite them to other. Let me summarize all of this one more time. Yes. We live in a chaotic world. God does not remove us from the chaos. Sometimes he does. But usually he chooses to use us through the chaos To be brought to a place of worship and to bring people along with us to worship God together. John was given a message which is the hope found in Jesus Christ. He ate that scroll. It became a part of him. And he revealed it to us so that we, in turn, could eat that scroll, that we could eat the message, that we could be and share the gospel message of Jesus Christ and share that with those around us to bring us along with that. But it's up to you. It's up to you to repent of your sins. It's up to you to say, yes, God, I will be willing to follow after you. You can choose me. You can send me. Let's go. Let's do this. And then you invite others to join along that with you. You know people, you know people that are struggling, that are going through chaos. Think of it like this. If you saw somebody hurting in pain that were standing in the middle of this fire and you're watching them and you're saying, hey, I can get you out of that pain of that fire. If you would just take one step this way, you are no longer burning in that fire. Wouldn't you do that to your best friend? Wouldn't you do that to your family member? So why is it that we see people standing in the fire, the chaos of this world, and we have the greatest solution ever for you to take one step to the left to experience Jesus in your life who suppresses that as the living water puts out the flames so that even though the flame is going on around you, even though the chaos is going around you, you can be at peace with Jesus. We have that solution. So why are we afraid to share that with other people? I don't have an answer. If you know, let me know. The call for us this morning is to receive the message of Jesus Christ and to share that with others. And I don't know where you're at this morning or what you need to pray for. But in this moment, we're going to pray as we close out the service. And I'm going to invite you To pray with me in your own words for whatever that thing is that you feel like you need to repent from, the thing that God is calling you to do. Pray with me. Father, we sit here in your presence, we sit here and choose you. We ask that you fill our hearts, that you come inside of us, that you cleanse our soul, that you put out the fire in our soul so that we can receive a new fire, a new burning passion of following after you. Father, we say sorry for the sins that we have committed. We seek forgiveness for for the things that we have done that we shouldn't have done. We seek forgiveness for the things that we should have done but didn't do. Father, give us the courage to leave this place on a mission with a purpose to follow after you to leave this place, to be and share the gospel and make disciples of all the nations as you have commanded each and every one of us. Father, be with us this week. Through the chaos that this week is going to bring, through the chaos that the last week has brought us, bring us to a place a place of peace, a place of comfort. Father, we love you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love to continue the conversation and connect with you. Comment, like, subscribe, follow us on the socials at Church or our website, rnas.church.